Support for Industry Focus comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interests in mind. Use Rocket Mortgage for a transparent, trustworthy home loan process that's completely online at quickenloans.com fool. That's quickenloans.com fool. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You're listening to the Financials Edition, taped today on Monday, March 20th, 2017. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on Skype is Jordan Wathen, our financial specialist at The Motley Fool. Hey, Jordan, how's it going? It's going all right. How about you, Gabby? Pretty good. Any crazy St. Patrick's Day stories? Uh, no, I'll say I saved those for last week. Uh, we had a pub crawl. The largest in the United States is actually in Charlotte, and I went last week. So this week I uh, stayed in and just took it easy. Um, fair enough. I know that uh, our our producer Austin says that he had a tiny headache on Saturday. <laughs> um, so today is mailbag day. We are answering four listener questions that have been sent to the show. If you'd like to have your question answered on a future show, please email us at industryfocus@fool.com. Our first question comes from Rob. He writes, Recently, I have been reading about equal weight index funds as compared to the standard capital weighted funds. Uh, examples, RSP versus SPY. Can you explore these equal weight funds in depth, please? Um, so yeah, so why don't we start with explaining what the difference is between those two types of funds? So I think the big difference is that there, there's really two differences, but one of the big ones is that the standard is market cap weighted, as he alluded to, which means that the largest companies make up the largest part of the index. So for something like the S&P 500, the largest holdings, and this is an order, are Apple, Microsoft, and Johnson and Johnson. So three out of 500 companies, those three make up about 8% of the S&P 500. That's if you look at an equally weighted index, it means that all those are treated equally. So those three, instead of making up 8% of the index, would make up about 0.6% of the index. Oh, that makes sense. So um, that would mean that in equal weighted funds, that smaller cap companies make up a larger percentage of the companies represented. Right. So if you look at it, you would say the big difference between them is that the market cap weighted funds, the standard funds, so to speak, are biased towards the largest stocks, whereas equally weighted funds are more biased towards the smaller stocks. So in a traditional S&P 500 fund, the standard fund, so to speak, it would invest about 45% of its assets in so-called giant companies or you know super large cap companies. An equally weighted fund would only have about 12% of its assets in those kind of companies. So obviously, you can see that it's uh, an equally related fund is way less reliant on you know the big ten or twenty companies that make up the index. Yeah, and I'm sure there's pros and cons to each, right? Right. So a standard S and P fund, the, the the big difference, the second big difference between these two is the industry difference. So as I said before, the two largest components of the S and P 500 are Apple and Microsoft, right? Two huge tech giants. If you look at an equally in equally weighted index, tech only makes up about 12% of assets, but in a standard S&P 500 fund, it makes up about 18% of assets. So there's a size difference, and then there's also you know, the industry difference uh, between the two funds. Yeah, so maybe if you're looking to be really heavily invested in tech and really big companies, um, the, the standard market cap weighted one might be for you, but if you're looking to be a little bit more diverse in, in your interests, maybe the equally weighted one is, is for you. Right. So I think what gets people interested in this is that the, uh, over long spans of periods of time, the, the, equally late, 
the equally weighted one will probably out for, outperform just because it has more exposure to those small and mid cap companies, which typically outperform large caps. But obviously, that outperformance comes with more volatility, right? So you're going to have to deal with like greater losses in a year in which the S&P 500 is down. Yeah, and the reason that the small and mid caps tend to outperform the the really large caps is because over the long term, that is, is because um, the small and mid caps have room to grow, whereas the super large mega giant caps that make up a, a lot of the market cap weighted ones, um, they don't have as much space to grow. So it's getting harder and harder for them to outperform their performance from last year. Right. So like, it, well, just look at Apple for example. If you look at Apple by assets, a lot of it's just cash, and obviously cash isn't going to beat stocks in the long haul. So intuitively, it makes sense that these largest companies that derive a lot of their value from you know earnings years ago aren't going to outperform the companies that will outperform on the basis of earnings going forward. Definitely. Um, so this is like a quick follow-up question that I'm actually asking, um, and it's more just things that I think that you should know when you're looking at index funds. Um, what are the most important things to look at when you're reviewing a fund? And my top answer is fees. I don't know about you, Jordan, but definitely, definitely check out the fees. Um, if you're paying more than what, like 0.6%, you're paying way too Even much. Even then, that sounds really high. <laughs> That's really high too. But I know some people in like their 401ks or whatever, they can't do less than that because some companies are really bad at picking out um, index funds for them. But like, Try really, really hard to make it as low as possible. The you can get an S and P 500 from Vanguard, and I know that we all sound like we're writing a love letter to Vanguard here at the Motley Fool, but you can get an S and P 500 from Vanguard for 0.05. That is, yeah, that's way better than 0.6. Well, and I'm going to say this, and I'm not going to name the company name because it's really actually I'd be kind of embarrassed, but. There is an S&P 500 index fund tracker out there that has loads of like 3% and an ongoing, you know, fee of like 1.2%, and it's just disgusting honestly. I would really hope that no one ended up with that, but I will agree with you that if you're going to invest in an index fund that truthfully all the matters are, you know, at the end of the day the expense ratio. Yeah, definitely. Um so, yeah. All right. I think I feel good about that, so we're going to move on to our next question. Um which comes from Luke B in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He writes I listened to the recent show on credit cards, not so recent anymore, <laughs> and credit ratings earlier, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on whether it's worth it to carry some debt on your credit card from month to month as a means of building your credit rating. I've always paid off each statement's worth of balance by the due date each month, which as someone who doesn't anticipate any large loan-worthy purchases in at least the next year has seemed like the most money-saving route to take. However, someone mentioned that credit card companies pr may prefer to see consumers actually managing, quote-unquote, their debt rather than paying it off. And I'd like your opinion on this matter. The only other type of debt I've had up to this point in my life are my student loans, which I've been paying down consistently for years, both on my own and with some help from my parents, and we'll have them all paid off ahead of schedule. So this is a great question, and this is actually one of the most common misconceptions that I see, and I have no idea where it started, but I've heard it from literally dozens of people. Maybe even tens of dozen now. That's an exaggeration. But you do <laughs> you do not need to carry a balance on your credit card in order to build your credit. Um, you just don't. In fact, it's probably best that you pay off your account in full every month because it's going to drive down your credit utilization ratio, which is a big part of how the bureaus calculate your credit score. Um, it also is going to make it easier for you to budget because your card is always paid off, so you know how much you owe at any given time, and you don't have to make interest payments on anything, which is also huge. I think a lot of people don't add in the idea of interest when they when they have carryover from month to month on their credit cards. Um, 
So I think that the origin of this idea that you don't want to pay off your credit card as soon as um, that you don't want to pay off your credit card in full every month, I think that people might have that confused with you don't want to pay off your credit card as soon as a charge hits it every time. And I do know some people who have done that in the past. Um, so like they, I don't know, go to Starbucks and spend five dollars, and then they go to the supermarket and spend fifty dollars, and at the end of the day they, I don't know eat a cruller and it's two dollars so at the end of the day they just pay off that whole um what would that be fifty seven dollars um instead of just like letting it sit on their on their credit card but you don't really want to do that because what happens is at the end of the month the bank or the credit card company whoever owns your credit card sends your statement over to the credit bureaus and if it's zero for long enough like because you have been just paying it off before um sometimes the credit bureaus will think that your credit card is no longer active and shut down your credit line or it will it'll say that you don't have an active credit line anymore and that'll drive down your credit utilization ratio but that's very rare that doesn't happen very often um but ideally what you should do is like pay it off once a month in full every month if you're really worried about your credit utilization ratio being high pay it off like half of it if you're worried about for whatever reason the credit card uh, bureaus thinking, or the credit bureaus thinking that your credit line is is no longer there, pay it off a little bit, and then that'll help keep your credit utilization ratio low. It'll let the credit bureaus know that your card is still active, um, and it'll it'll just be great. Right. So, like, th- this actually drives me nuts because honestly, there's probably like a like one point benefit to somehow carrying a balance but in the grand scheme of like does your credit score matter the one point is irrelevant like it's completely irrelevant it does not matter to anything no but like they can say that that's true so it's like hey pay us more interest right yeah so it's one of those cases where you can like almost over optimize i guess and like end up paying five dollars for one point on your credit score that makes no difference whatsoever yeah that's true like the credit card companies care more about whether or not you're going to um you're going to pay on time and you're not using like so much of your credit ratio or your credit utilization ratio that it's like out of control like they they care more about those things for in terms of trustworthiness rather than like you having interest um, right. and like, honestly like long term if you have a lot of interest that is bad <laughs> right no that's terrible you never want to pay interest on a credit card like you can honestly have an 800 credit score just by paying on time and making sure your credit utilization ratio is never over 15% and then you're probably solid right I mean, it's really not that complicated, and I feel like I feel like they make it almost too hard, or like we try to explain it to such a depth that it doesn't matter. But really, just pay your stuff on time, and ideally, just try to never cross fifteen percent. I know that's under the thirty percent threshold that you know everyone quotes, but that makes it a little bit easier, and you'll never you know cross that barrier. So it's super simple. Yeah, yeah, it's really not a huge deal. I think that for me, one of the reasons that this makes me kind of panicky when I hear it from people is that I know that a lot of people aren't very good at budgeting to begin with. And then they're like trying to carry a balance every month and like they're paying interest on it. And I can just see that situation rapidly spiraling out of control. Um, Right. So So, like that's the thing, too, is a credit score only matters at the point in time you need it. So like, for example, my friend, he called me up one day. He's like, man, my credit score is really low, but I paid everything on time. And the reason was he had a card with something like a super low limit. Maybe it was like five hundred or one thousand dollars. And he would just use it for everything that month and then pay it off in full. It wasn't a big deal. You know, he would never go over his credit limit or anything. But when they took that snapshot in time, it would say that he was like 60 or 70 percent utilization. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he asked me about it. I said, just, hey, just stop using it for, you know, a month or two when you know you're going to need a good credit score. And he did. And it jumped like 70 or 80 points. Yeah. Right. 
Which is like the difference between prime and subprime in some cases. So oh, definitely. I yeah, mean, it's a big deal. The other thing you could do is you could open another credit card, um, and that'll increase your your credit limit, like your total credit limit, and just use it rarely. Um, so I mean, there's there's definitely multiple ways to to play the system. And technically, like yes, opening a credit card will um, make your credit score dip, but it's only by like a couple points for like a few months, and then it'll go right back up because your credit utilization, um, like the total amount of credit you have, is much higher. So. Right. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's what I feel like is the big, like, why people don't understand this is that there are things that are true for like three or four or five points. But in the grand scheme of things, three or four or five points on a 700 or 800 score does not matter. Your lender's not going to deny you over three or four points. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Like, just get the big things right and just forget about everything else. I think I have like something over, you know, I have a really good credit score. I could get really good low interest rates. And all I do is just pay stuff on time. You know, yeah, it's me too. Yeah. Um, and I will say that we have a fool.com slash credit cards um, that is a great resource. If you have questions about credit cards, feel free to email us too, but talk to a financial planner as well, because as you guys know, since I'm so paranoid about legal things, um, <laughs> we do not offer personal advice. So do not take this as personal advice. Um, but anyway, talking about credit, um, your credit score can have a big impact on uh, your mortgage rates. So, when it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, it's important to work with someone you can trust and who has your best interests in mind. With Rocket Mortgage, you'll get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial info to get a mortgage approval in minutes. Whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. Skip the bank, skip the waiting, and go completely online at quickenloans.com. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Thanks again to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans for supporting our podcast. Okay, back to the show. Um, so I had Anonymous write in and ask, they have a name, but you know, um, should I base my investments on 13Fs? Um, and this question needs to be broken down a little bit, starting with what is a 13F? Jordan Wathen, a softball question for you. All right, one of my favorite regulatory filings. A 13F is a filing that large investors or funds have to file and they have to disclose basically their holdings at a point in time at the end of the quarter uh, four times a year. Yeah, That's as simple as I can say it is. But they only disclose their long position. So they only disclose what they own, not necessarily what they're short selling. So with hedge funds, you have to be a little careful. Yeah. And the type of people who have 13Fs are like George Soros or Warren Buffett or like you said, hedge funds. Um, so that, that I think that's why the person asked this question because it's like in theory these people who have like some sort of deep insight into the market, you know what I mean? Um, right. Yeah. Right. Sorry. That's I meant why to... anybody looks at them, right? Like I would be lying if I said I didn't because I really want to reverse engineer, you know, a great investor's process, right? Because I look at it just to like try to figure out how they're shaping their portfolio, and if I can learn something, why not? You know, it takes ten minutes to look at their thirteen F, so I of course do. Yeah, definitely. Um, but the short story on this question, which is just to remind you, should I base my investments on 13Fs, is no, you shouldn't. <laughs> no. So so look at this. I actually want everyone who's listening to this to Google this. It's called the Medallion Fund, and it's managed by Renaissance Technologies. It's the greatest hedge fund of all time, period, end of discussion, just ungodly returns. So 
I'm talking like 30% a year and the only losing year, they only had one losing year since 1988. And it wasn't even 2008 either. It was like 1999. But they've just blown it out of the water. But if you look at their 13F, you, you will learn nothing because the medallion fund trades in and out of stocks more often than you tra- you change your stocks on your feet, right? Like th- they trade constantly. So their point in time snapshot, which you get from the 13F, has actually no value whatsoever. Yeah. And that's exactly why you shouldn't be making these like long-term investing decisions on, on what's going on with the 13F. Um, I think one of the most popular people to look at is Warren Buffett. Um, and recently, he you told me this. Um, we were talking about this before the show. He bought ExxonMobil, and he said he bought it because it was better than having that money in cash. Yeah, Charlie Munger basically said at the Daily Journal annual meeting, he said, yeah, you know why we bought ExxonMobil? We thought it was better than cash. And they literally held it for less than two years. And if you think about what Buffett does and what Berkshire Hathaway does, they're trying to beat the market over long periods of time. But if you don't understand that nuance, you might look at it and say, oh, well, ExxonMobil, right? You know, they bought it, it must be gravy, they're trying to beat the market. When in actuality, all they wanted to do was beat a savings account, right? And there's so many investments to do that. So I think you really just have to understand who's filing the 13F, first of all. And second of all, like what is their goal with the, you know, with the stocks that they buy? Because Berkshire, it's it's changed so much. They used to want to smash the market, and now apparently they're really just trying to beat a savings account, which is a really low threshold. Yeah, I mean it's also hard because Berkshire Hathaway, it's getting like we talked about earlier with those really big companies that have trouble outperforming how they did historically. Berkshire Hathaway has the exact same problem. Right. Like I'm not trying to give Berkshire a hard time. I mean I can see they're probably thinking you know dividend income, tax at a lower rate, those kind of things whatever. And so, you know, I'm not trying to like rub on Buffett. Obviously, he's the most successful investor of all time. I don't know if anyone will ever top him. But if you follow him now, he's, tr- you know, he's investing much differently than he did in the 1980s and 1990s, what he's really known for. Yeah. So, again, short story to should I base my investments on 13Fs is no. And if you want, I'm more than happy to send you an article on this. We write approximately a million every year. Um, it might be a mild exaggeration, but it feels like that because I edit all of them. <laughs> um, and well, I, you just have to look at them as shopping lists, and it, you know, like you still need to do your own analysis. But I don't think it's ever bad to look at a, what a great investor is buying and try to understand why. I actually think that's a really productive use of your time. Yeah, definitely, and it's definitely also really interesting to get a stack of 13Fs together, um, like historical 13Fs, and see what's going on over time. Um, but yeah, you shouldn't base your entire portfolio around what one person or even a set of really good investors is doing because you have no idea what's going through their mind. They're just saying what they own, not why they own it. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing too is so like so because they don't report short sales, you just have to be really important like really it's really important that you be really careful about how much weight you put onto it because someone could be like long Walmart and then short target they have you know neutral to so to speak to to retail. But like they don't really love Walmart that much. They just love it more than Target, right? It's a pairs trade. But you never know the opposite side of it with a 13F. Yeah. So. And the other thing to keep in mind is that it's kind of a snapshot of an investor's portfolio. Like they could exit the position the day after 13Fs are out, and you wouldn't know until the next 13F comes out. And those come out about once a quarter, just in case you're curious. But like you, you know, you you don't really 100% know exactly what's in there based on the 13Fs. Right. Um, so, our final question of the day comes from David. He writes, I have a question about trading on margin. I just opened a brokerage account and am building a portfolio of high quality stocks that I intend to hold for the long term. 
I'm wondering if there's a way to invest, quote unquote, foolishly using margin. For example, I'm making monthly contributions to my account and adding to my positions, keeping my transaction costs under 2%, but I don't always have cash on hand to make my purchases, so I end up using margin. Does it make sense to maintain a margin position as my portfolio grows? The interest is only 1%, and I'm hoping my returns will continue to exceed that hurdle. If I plan on holding my investments for the long term, the interest will be constantly adding to my margin position, and I will grow and grow at an accelerating rate over time. So, first off, I actually did send the listener a set of articles about trading on margin, and I'm happy to send those to you if you write into industryfocus at fool.com and ask for them. Um, so, Jordan, <laughs> I know that you and I have very similar risk-averse personalities, um, and I'm going to say what I said to this guy, which is that I cannot give you personal advice. Um, I know I'm harping on this, but as always, I, I just need you guys to know that. Um, but this is how I personally feel. I am a very risk-averse person, and trading on margin makes me very, 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 very nervous. <laughs> um, so I would never personally trade on margin, but you have to decide what's best for you. What would you say, Jordan? So I'm going to be a bit of a hypocrite because, like, I've I've short sold things before, and that's inherently on margin. Basically, it exposes you to unlimited risk. But truthfully, if you're if you're going to manage like a constantly like long portfolio and you're going to use margin, it kind of sounds like to me it's like, is it okay to use heroin one day a week or like every day of the week? And it's like I'm never going to advise it. It's just so dangerous. It looks so lucrative, especially when stocks are going up. You know, like if I just you know doubled my portfolio value by leveraging it, it'd be fantastic. But oh wait, the- actually, sorry, that reminds me. Can you explain what trading on margin is real quick? So trading on margin is basically using the broker's borrowed money. You're borrowing money from a broker to buy stocks, and you pay interest on the margin. So you, so if you borrow $10,000 to buy stocks at a retail broker, they might charge you 4% interest on that every year, or $400 a year. Yeah, and that's great as long as the stocks are going up if you're not like shorting or whatever. But the problem is that there is, there's unli- if you're shorting a stock, in particular, and that's why most people trade on margin as opposed to to our friend David. Um, there's potential for unlimited amounts of loss. Um, I don't know if you remember this, Jordan. Do you remember the the guy who shorted uh, Kalo Bios on margin? I did. I. It's a good <laughs> lesson in why you should never short a biotech company. Yeah. So this guy, um, what was it like a year ago now? He. It was about yeah, about a year ago. Yeah, he shorted this company called Kalo Bios. Um, and then, and I think it was something at like three dollars, and then it went up to seventeen dollars when he wasn't looking, and he lost an absurd amount of money. I think it was like a hundred thousand dollars. Um, yeah, a hundred thousand dollars. That's crazy. And what he did was he started a GoFundMe to help pay off his debt to his brokerage, um, which is funny in and of itself. He's like, I don't understand why the brokerage didn't tell me this could happen, and they do. It's just in the fine print. Right. Well, that's the problem. They give you like a 27 page, you know, contract or whatever you sign. You know, everyone scrolls through it and signs their digital signature and then moves on with life. Uh, There's like I can really just categorize this into two basic ideas that say, hey, in a general rule, it's not good to use margin. The big one is that margin isn't like a mortgage. Right. So like if you go buy a house with a mortgage and the house drops 50 percent, the bank can't just show up, knock on the door and say, hey, you owe us a ton of money. But that's exactly how margin loans work, because it's mark to market every single day. If, if the stock you buy with margin goes down, you have to come up with money or you have to close it out. You might have to sell at a price you would never dream of selling a stock at, which is like the number one, oopsie, don't want to be part of that. Yeah. And then the second one is that you're paying so much 
in general to borrow money from a broker that you're giving up a lot of the upside, but the downside is still 100% yours. If the stock moves against you, that's all your loss. If it moves up and that's gravy, you're still paying interest, right? So you've got a scenario where you get less than 100% of the upside and 100% of the downside, it's, you know, it's not a great deal just conceptually. Yeah, definitely. Um, and one of the things about, um, so there's a difference between shorting what you do on margin and just like investing on margin. I just want to make that clear for listeners. Um, but when a stock loses out, the most you can lose is 100% if you're just trading like normally. Um, like I said, if you're shorting, you can lose way more than that. Um, but if you're trading on margin, like you're still kind of on the hook for the amount of money that you borrowed, um, plus whatever you've lost in the stock itself. Um, and, I, and I wanted to follow up on um, how that turned out for the listener who emailed me. Um, and I know that when we first talked about this, you're like, man, 1%, like that is really cheap for trading on margin. But he wrote back after um, I responded and told me that he had misread the fine print on the margin interest rate. He thought it was 1%, but it was actually 1% above the base rate of 8%. And he says, needless to say that I won't be using margin going forward as I'm not confident in exceeding a 9% hurdle rate with my returns. Yeah, no, that's just massive. And truthfully, that's the thing too, is like, if you go to any retail broker, I don't, I don't think there's a single one, even at $3 million of account equity, that'll give you money at 1%. They just won't. I mean, you know, benchmark interest rates, like half a percent. Why, why lend to Joe Blow on margin? You just don't. So that, that's the thing. It's like, it's really hard to beat the benchmark at most retail brokers. So in either way, it doesn't matter. Even if you didn't have to, I would just say, you know what, it's okay. You can leave a little money off the table to not expose yourself to such massive losses too. Yeah, definitely. So, I'm not surprised that we have fairly similar feelings on this concept. Um, do you have anything else you want to say about any of the questions that listeners asked, or just general life advice? No, I would. I would just truthfully say that honestly, uh, just keep it simple. Like with everything we talked about today, with margin, with credit scores, for example. I mean, really, if you just follow the you know most basic golden rule, you'll be okay. You know, with credit scores, paid on time with margin, probably just don't do it. And you'll be okay. Like 8% a year over the long run is an incredible return. You get that whether you're levered or you're unlevered. So, you know, there's no reason to take there's no reason to take super risk just to have a little bit more money at the end of the day. It's uh, the downside just so tremendously bad that I don't think you want to. Definitely. Um, my life advice is actually not related to financials. It's don't mix bleach and ammonia when you're cleaning stuff. I had a friend almost killed themselves this weekend by doing that, by trying to clean their bathroom. It's a terrible idea. Um, I just wanted to, to put out that PSA, because <laughs> please don't do that, people. Um, Austin, do you have any life advice for listeners? Nothing off the top of my head. Nothing on like how to hit a baseball better? Swing hard and hope you throw for the best. <laughs> <laughs> just so you guys know, Aust first, Austin's also a baseball coach. The, uh, the first two strikes are for you. <laughs> All right, I think I think that's it. Enough shenanigans. Um, let us know if you have any questions by emailing us at industryfocusatfool.com. As usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Contact us at industryfocusatfool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. We love answering your questions, but we can only answer them if you ask them. So email us. Thank you to Austin Morgan, baseball coach extraordinaire and today's Totally Awesome producer. And thank you to y'all for joining us. Everyone have a great week.